Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I got to while away the rhymes of an hour with award-winning writer Dylan Coburn-Gray. Actually, we talk out of time, so the recording has become a two-parter. In the first part, which I like to call part one, Dylan talks about the everyday odyssey of city song and how hope is the baseline emotion of writing. He pulls into focus questions about authenticity, who gets to tell what stories, who gets to play those characters. We talk about grief and the new perspective it affords you, the tiny triumphs of poetry and the telling sincerity of the city song cast. In the second part, that I call part two, we talk about beginnings. Dylan talks about growing up in a creative household, school days, early plays and the consequences of being an artist in Ireland. There's so much to listen and consider in this. There's a section in here where Dylan talks about the dissatisfied beauty of poetic pottery, piling nearly good enough words onto nearly good enough words. It's poetry in itself, and it's all to play for. City Song captures the breadth of the human condition in snapshots of recognition, big thoughts and small moments. The moment is the point. Be in this moment. Enjoy this podcast. Dylan Coburn Gray. Now we were just we're up in the control room here of the Abbey Theatre and we've been looking out on onto the stage and watching all those little doozers bring your show to life. When you were writing City Song, did you envision this? Did you envision it actually making it onto a stage? Yeah, not this one though. Yeah, I, I think I semi deliberately tried to uh, not think about what the forum is until the thing is written because uh, I think when I was writing City Song, it was my second or third play. Um, so it still all felt very early days and like everything was to play for and to be proven. Um, and Or just even, you know, I still kind of had to let people get to know me through my writing. Because um, I think maybe the other way it sounds more like there's set stakes or whatever. I think it's more you just want to put stuff out there. And I, I maybe just had a, had a sense from watching peers of mine that uh, sometimes the worst thing you can do is try and tailor your idea to a specific forum or venue or uh, style or audience too quickly because then actually you lose the the kernel or the seed of, of, of the thing you're really interested in and it kind of becomes about, it, you end up reverse engineering what you should be writing about from what you hope people will like. Um, and I think you need that little bit of, I don't know, enlightened selfishness of writing the thing you really want to write about. So uh, yeah, so I think writing City Song, I knew I wanted it to happen somewhere. Uh, you always want it to happen. You're not writing for posterity. You're writing for someone here and now, even if you don't know who yet. Uh, but I didn't know who yet it, or it, where. It's a sheer kind of act of hope, the very endeavour of writing something, I think, because yeah. there's so much hope. It's drenched in hope because there's such a risk involved putting it on paper, but then also that you do have an aspiration that it will get wings and, you know, live somewhere else. It is, it is really interesting that in a way that I, I've been working a lot with uh, teenagers the last little while to help them write. And I, I, I forget because I think I've always been a bit of a weirdo and that I've always genuinely really actually enjoyed the writing bit of writing. I think lots of writers enjoy having written things. Um, they're not so mad on the bit where you actually sit down and they're staring at a page. But I love that bit. Um, and I'd forgotten actually, but and then until, you know, like I was teaching, like it's such a fraught process in a way because the hopes are so high, the expectations are so high. And I think... Um, uh, hope, hoping is quite a difficult and vulnerable thing to do because by letting people know what you hope for you actually tell them quite a lot about who you currently are you know and what you're hoping to escape or uh, would prefer were not, were not the case um, and I think as well at 16 like that's a really 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 raw thing to hand people you know that's a that's a big stick for them to beat you with um, 
and actually most of the process is not about me kind of going take out that simile take out that adjective take out that adverb it's mostly me going it's okay to say what you mean <laughs> um so yeah hope is fundamental hope is the the, the baseline emotion of writing, maybe. Yeah. Today is Thursday Tech, and Saturday night, bong, 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 is the first preview with a <laughs> public audience. As the playwright, where are you in this process now? Um, I've been around a fair bit up till now, um, so that if things need to change, they can be changed, uh, which is not to say that they can't change if I'm not there, but that it's lovely to have a dialogue. Um, and to kind of offer and counter-offer, because sometimes things need to change, you know, which is, um, this line is nice, um, but it wrecks this actor's head, and actually people don't do their best work when they're self-conscious. So if you can think the same thought in a way that's a little more frictionless, absolutely change it. Um, and then sometimes, you know, Katrina will want to cut things, and we go, okay, cool, I feel like that leaves a little bit of a bump, you know, which is, you're right that there's something wrong, but I feel like uh, rather than just excise the snag entirely and then have a different kind of snag, that maybe we should try and paper over it or smooth it out. Uh, yeah, spackle writing is what I've been doing, you know, which is uh, <laughs> plugging gaps and kind of trying to smooth things out. Um, and then I suppose at this point I'm totally useless in the nicest possible way and I'm literally just hanging around. I say all that, actually I've been hanging around the whole time just because I feel really lucky to get to. You know, it's not every day that uh, people agree to do your play for you. I think I'm of a generation of writers for whom that's really weird, the idea that there is this infrastructure that exists just to produce plays so that people can like them, because, you know, we are the hashtag self-producing artists, although lots of us aren't very good at that, you know, it's a completely different skill set. So the fact that, like, rehearsals keep going even when I'm not there is kind of mind-blowing and kind of magic in a really low-grade way. And also, like, the fact that people just have the time to play and explore and think long-term thoughts. I was in a, um, I've been par in parallel in the room with Malaprop, my collaborative company, and we're doing very well, um, but uh, a bit skint, uh, or perpetually skint, and I suppose just um, we were talking about how lovely it is to be making this project we're now making uh, six months out, because it gives us the chance to think long-term thoughts in a way we haven't before, where every decision, every game you play, every exercise you try, everything you ask actors to do is very, very goal-oriented because actually you can't afford to not have a product at the end of probably two weeks full-time if you added up all of the hours you spend in living rooms and blah 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 So it's just incredibly lovely to watch, I suppose, all of the different tendrils the cast and crew and uh, Katrina have put out in lots of different directions and then how those have kind of come into focus as the... The, the finished or nearly finished product it is now. Um, it's been gorgeous it's been, and I feel really honoured if that's not a really cheesy word. <laughs> no, not at all. It's lovely to see your excitement. Yeah. I think maybe as well it's partly because uh, you know it's stylistically particular so there's a lot of kind of quite first principles decisions to be made because you know um, I love naturalistic plays. Uh, I don't mean to imply any kind of negative comparison here but you know there's more of a set language there, which is that if you are handed a script that says it's in this room and these people are the people who they are and they come in and they talk to each other as each other and then at the end of the play they're still doing that. Um, I think there's people have more of a set procedure for how to go about staging something like that, whereas City Song is kind of mostly text, very, very few stage directions and the stage directions there are are pretty much just telling you specific qualities that this line should probably have or... Um, so there's lots of decisions to be made before you can actually do anything and uh, and that's semi-deliberate you know that you want it to be flexible and free and the idea that there's i don't know parallel dimensions where city song is a totally different thing um 
but it's nice to be in the room and to be uh, helpful, you know, so that you're being usefully opaque rather than frustratingly uh, enigmatic, if that makes sense. <laughs> would, it, would, would it have been easier to write a naturalistic play? Would, would that have, um, your style obviously over the years has been verse and monologue. Um, you were never tempted to write a naturalistic play, but when I see, when I see and read it, I think it's, it's, it's something else. Do you know, it's, there's a lot, a lot yeah. of work in it. I mean, yeah, again, just hailing back to that, which is I love dialogue plays. I love two characters in a situation for however long. Um, I just feel little or no obligation or interest in writing that way. Um, I think because, you know, I, I think different theatrical languages are lenses. They bring different things into focus. And as ever, the, like, the one rule is you can't have everything in focus at the same time. So you kind of have to pick what you want to uh, have be absolutely clear. And I think um, naturalism is really great for behaviour and moments and, I suppose, process, seeing someone go through something, you know, in time. Um, and that's really beautiful because, you know, feelings do take time. They aren't just these buttons that get pressed in us, you know, boom, now I'm angry, boom, now they're off. And I think those gradations and subtleties of a feeling arriving and then departing in naturalism are amazing, you know, responsiveness as information arises and everything. But um, I suppose it's really hard to write a really good naturalistic play about problems that are chronic, you know. Um, naturalism is good at, I suppose, moments where things do decisively change. And actually then it's really hard to write a, a convincing naturalistic play that doesn't go somewhere, that takes you into a moment and then fundamentally the moment remains unchanged or nothing uh, emerges from it. Which is not to say it's not of interest, but actually lots of, I think, the problems that really hurt us in the current world and always have been chronic. And that's what other styles like poetry or slightly weirder theatre are for, is bringing those things into focus. You've lived with this completed play for over three years. Your previous works, as you've mentioned, in, including work with Malaprop Theatre Company, Dalton Verse and Monologue. Is this, is City Song um, a culmination of all your learnings up to then? And what have you learned since then? Yeah, that's an interesting one because City Song predates Malaprop. Um, so I think when I was writing City Song, I had just written my first dialogue play, which had yet to happen anywhere. Uh, and then it was subsequently staged by Malaprop, I think, in the year where we didn't want to devise a new show yet because we'd only devised one show and we kind of wanted to not uh, railroad ourselves into having to model our second process so closely on the first one because of time constraints. We wanted to take a little time and find out whether, I suppose, to separate the idiosyncrasies of that project from what was like the, the heart of it. Um, and to do that, we decided to do a play that already existed, which was Black Affish Musketeer. So I'd kind of taken a detour away from the poetry stuff for a while. And I think I'd always known I didn't want to just do that. But I knew I wanted to keep doing it, certainly. Um, so, yeah, I'd kind of change gear. And I think that was really helpful then in terms of plugging that back into City Song and having it be, I suppose, more collective. Um, because... Boys and Girls and Crosses, which were two plays I'd written before that and are in the, the book, along with uh, City Song. Um, one's a monologue, so it is for a single speaker. And in Boys and Girls, there are four speakers who don't engage with one another. And then I suppose City Song was, a, it was about weaving different voices together so that they kind of added up to more than the sum of their parts, really, and that they could collaborate, um, uh, even if they weren't always acknowledging each other. So, yeah, so, I mean, I think... More generally, maybe to open that out, I, I kind of really believe that every project teaches you how to write the next one. And I mean, there's certain things I have on the list in my head, which I'm like, oh, I really want to write that. And I really wanted to write that for 
maybe two or three years. I just don't know how yet. Um, but I'm pretty sure that problem solving on this project uh, will give me a piece of the puzzle and then problem solving on this project will probably hand me another. Um, like a really concrete example of that is I was away last summer on residency and conspicuously failed to write the play I was supposed to write. I wrote lots of other things um, and I was working on a play for Fishamble and having finished the Fishamble play I was walking down uh, Parnell Street I think having bought some second-hand books and chapters and just went oh the whole style of my Fishamble play which is called Everything That Never Happens is how I need to write a play I failed to write before it so actually you know, there was a really that was a, that was a really lovely, neat little uh, book ending of couldn't do it, did something else. Now I can do it. But I think sometimes the that logic is a little more deferred and frustrating. That's that's what you would love to happen all the time, <laughs> or actually, what you would love to happen all the time is that you just write the thing <laughs> and it's easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's something that you said there. Um, yes, was there an image or an idea that sparked these particular fictional characters in City Song? And did you have to any? Did you have to kill any of your darlings along the way? Ooh. I think there weren't specific moments I knew I wanted. Um, there were specific thoughts I knew I wanted. And they definitely haven't turned up in the finished product the way I thought they would turn up. Uh, but they are there. Um, yeah. I think maybe darlings uh, are a little easier to swap in and out when it's when I suppose the logic of the play is quite cinematic. You know, it's not fixed lens naturalism in terms of you're in this scenario and uh, I suppose the emotional logic carries you seamlessly from point A to point Z, which means that if you want to change something at Z, you kind of have to change it quite far upstream. So you have to go back to D and rethink everything that emerges from that. Um, whereas City Song, because it's told, um, you're free to, I suppose, editorialize and to write linking paragraphs between moments. Um, so it's definitely not the play I thought I would be writing when I started writing it, but it never is. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I think um, not specific images. I think maybe one image that recurs very significantly and did arrive early on and is still there was, I think, of people holding children. Um, so there's what there's a moment near the start, I think, as I suppose the the fulcrum of the action, you know, which is this family, uh, as they're introduced, you know, this, this there's a line about uh, um, as the sun clears the horizon as roundly as the crown of a purple, white, and greasily shining baby. This woman is handed hers, and he's breathing as easily as she isn't, and uh, and that's this woman, this woman Kate, and her partner Rob, and their child, who kind of thematically remains nameless until until a later point in the play. At which, again, it is his grandmother holding him. I think it's just such a powerful moment. It's just really rich in resonances. I think, you know, the, the, the thing I have floating in my mind's eye now is like the Pieta, you know, which is it's a thing of um, why is that such a powerful image? I think because it's uh, an, an adult man and an adult woman in a position that kind of contains the story of their relationship and when they were otherwise, do you know? It's a picture that actually lets you see lots of other pictures that aren't actually present but are in every meaningful sense, uh, it sends you off down a spiral of, oh yeah, it has, it's full of implication, you know, and weight. Um, and I kind of think the lovely thing is you can send that in the other direction as well, which is rather than back into the character's past, into the futures. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the things about babies is they have this, this weight or this magic, because you go, oh my God, everything's going to happen to you. <laughs> um, and I think for new parents, that's a really spooky, wonderful, terrifying thought, you know, which is, Oh God, like it's all going to happen to you, all the things that happen to everyone. Um, 
sorry <laughs> or you're welcome or sorry and you're welcome all at once um, and I suppose that bracketing of new mother being handed her child who's about to grow up versus grandmother being handed that same child but then reflecting on that story from in the, the opposite direction just having done it all um, those are two kind of thematic bookends in the play there's a little bit happens before that and a little bit after that but uh, those are key moments and I knew I wanted that early on I might get back to some of those images because they are so evocative and, and, and surprised me when I saw it in, in the brief performance I saw recently. I want to ask you, just as you're talking there, um, you're 27 years old? Yeah. Um, and you write women really well. I know that is such a loaded question and because it is the writer's duty and the writer, you know, this is what you do. You, you, you make these leaps into imagination, so I don't think you have to have gone through everything, experienced everything to write about it. Yeah, that is a loaded one, I think. Uh, it's not that I don't think you have the right to. Well, I've had conversations with friends about, uh, I have a thing about what perhaps writers have the authority to write about. Do you oh, know, yeah. there's some things that I think, well, wh who gave you permission to write about that subject? I, I don't feel that about this, but uh, but that is that is your that is your obligation. That's what you have to do. Y you don't have to have experienced everything. I would definitely agree. I mean, I think to take uh, you know to take another example that's close to my heart um, in terms of authenticity and who gets to tell what stories. Uh, I've written a play for a Taiwanese Irish actor, which is kind of uh, who's male and in their thirties, and it's about their fractious relationship with their mother, who's an immigrant who came to Ireland in the it's ambiguous the fifties or sixties. But uh, really interestingly, I've been shopping it around for a while and we think it can't happen because uh, there are no actors whose experience that is. You know, so there are Asian Irish actors, but there's no one in that specific bracket, you know, who can, I suppose, uh, play that role naturalistically. And when I say naturalistically, I don't mean perfectly, but I mean, I suppose, with minimal friction so that the audience aren't coming in and immediately going, okay, this is a deconstructed, clever, clever theatre with microphones thing. Um, uh, I really wanted to write that story, not because it's my experience. It's not my experience. Um, I think it was coming from an emotion, which I do feel. Uh, my biological grandfather was Chinese, um, probably. Uh, and uh, I suppose, the, 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 you know, the fact is, you know, like my mother was adopted, which means I've never known him. That's why I say probably. Um, we're going on based on the best guess of my biological grandmother, who is a white woman from Waterford, talking about the 60s. So political correctness was not <laughs> what it is now. Uh, so <laughs> she says Chinese, that could mean any number of things. Um, it just means not white, you know. Um, but that's interesting because that's a big question mark. And I suppose I wanted to write a character who had a similar emotional question mark or a thing they had to wonder about. Um, and again, because I'm one generation off it, I was not adopted. That's not my story. Um, but I suppose I felt like that emotional core sits behind a number of experiences related to feeling both in and out of your world, feeling like you're both both things that are that make you up and neither of them, you know, feeling in between or liminal or a little bit weird. I think weird is the <laughs> simplest way of putting it. Um, and so there's a there's a note near the start of that. Sorry, this is a very circuitous no. answer. Um, but there's a note near the start of that about who should play that character um, as we explore, because I asked myself, well, would I be happy for, I suppose, an Asian diaspora actor who grew up in Britain to play that character? And I go, 
ooh, because then you get into really concrete things like, in theory, yes, do I know many British actors who can do a really good Irish accent? No. And actually, that's not a purely aesthetic consideration. That's an authenticity consideration, you know, which is, well, why do we not know many British actors who can do a really good Irish accent? Because British people don't have to know about Ireland in the same way that Irish people, for historical reasons, do have to know about Britain. Um, so I think even within diasporas, which because they are, you know, immigrant stories, tend to come with a certain amount of societal disenfranchisement, you know, society, his, his, most societies historically not having been great to immigrants. Um, but even there, there's layers of in, uh, privilege and uh, uh, blindness to each other's experience. Um, but the note at the start of the script says uh, this play is about feeling in between. So it would be really startling if the actor playing this character, Eric, had no experience of that. Um, which is, I kind of felt like a manageable level of okay. detail. And then I doubled down by going, so to be clear, probably not a white person. So <laughs> I, did, I didn't rule it out, but it's there. So to bring that back maybe to gender, because which is uh, gender, I think, is nominally less fraught than race, you know, which is, uh, and yet, I think male writers definitely screw it up, at least as often. Um, would certainly be my assessment, you know, and I think there's a lot of really great internet comedy at the moment, you know, which is about, I suppose, pillory, pillorying the writing of women that men have gotten away with for a really long time. Um, I was reading a Paul Oster book recently, Moon Palace, and actually it's the perfect intersection of maybe the two strands I've just compared there, which is um, the, the main character meets this woman, Kitty, who's a Chinese-American, and this is a book, like a really, really, really feminist but male friend of mine recommended and I was reading it going oh this is the most grotesquely orientalist you know kind of you know like beautiful biddable you know kind of woman who exists to serve the I mean it's and, and, and I think it's really startling to, to to hear how uncritically that book is praised as a beautiful insightful this that the other and this thing goes totally unmarked so um, if I write women well just to try and sum all of that up uh, I think it's because I work with women. Uh, Malaprop is five women and two men. Um, uh, I've worked with my mother a fair bit, who I think is a brilliant theatre maker um, and who I really enjoy working with. Um, and we try not to have too many family spats in front of people. Um, and again, I think there's a funny thing about, you know, like this instant you say you write women well, that strikes terror into my heart because as soon as you get the the, the validation, the, 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 the terror is that it's you're going to fuck up next time or you're going to mess up, you know? Well, there, um, is, there is a risk involved, you know? There yeah. are, in, in even trying to. Yeah. And again, in a way, I think the answer to that is is to not be invested in getting it right, because I think it's so easy for that to become an ego thing rather than a consideration thing. And that if you get any skill at writing experiences that are not your own, it comes from listening. But actually, you cannot take credit for your own listening because you can only listen when other people are speaking and putting their experience before you. So actually, I think you can only redirect the the the, the, what's the word, the integrity outward. You can only say thanks. Um, I need to reflect that onto other people because I've reflected it from them in the first place. Uh, as with race, so with gender, which is, we can learn about each other. Um, and I think we need to stop trying to claim uh, that learning as our distinctive genius or our distinctive product. It's not, you know, I think writing at its best is just kind of a, a crystallization of things that we've learn from each other you're the channel if not the originator does that make sense yes yeah it's um see it's, it's also as a, as a as a viewer as a as a patron or you know watching this 
I, I don't have to have experienced all those things that resonate with me. Yeah. There were so many flashes of recognition when I when I saw it upstairs in the rehearsal room that wasn't my story. Yeah. And yet, like, it kind of crushed my heart at times. You know, there's those, there's just images, that hope that a child being born, just that willful hope that everything's going to be okay, mm. do you know? And uh, and those, there's just those heart-crushing moments of, of, um, of remembrances of, of a sleeping child being carefully taken from the backseat of a car back into the house, you know, and just, yeah, yeah flashes of recognition, is, I suppose, is how I could describe it, but not necessarily my story. There's, like, Bridget breaks my heart yeah. when I watch that, and then the relationship with Bridget and Kate, and, and that there's a line in it that you have about... Um, being hollowed and held and, mm. and um, the poverty of the, the mother's grief. The realisation of her mother's sudden poverty. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I really like that bit because, you know, people sometimes think of rhyme as fancy language. You know, the point is to use cool words uh, in a cool way. And actually, I think, no, because um, I think it's more to set up a pattern that allows you to just generate little moments of clarity. You know, it's like I like that metaphor of lenses because it's about bringing things into focus. Um, yeah, because it's specifically about her lying in bed with her non-husband, her partner, um, after her father has just died and kind of thinking, oh, this is the thing she doesn't have anymore. It's that interesting moment of when you're taken out of your own grief, maybe, into someone else's. And that way, maybe, that we, yeah, put ourselves in each other's shoes. Um, I think that for me is really strong and that actually, yeah, even going back to that thing of holding children, I think the resonances in the plays are the ones where you ask the audience to do what the characters are doing for each other, which is that trying to be one another, you know, mm. in order to better look after each other or to, uh, to give each other what they need. Um, and you implicate the audience in that by saying, be in this moment. Have you been here? Maybe, maybe you know what that feels like. And if you haven't, maybe you need to, you know? Maybe someone in your life needs you to, uh, to understand this. So I suppose it's offers of that kind. And I think there's a performance note in the start, which is the audience is always there, maybe for that reason, you know? Um, and I think the moments that get us are the ones, not necessarily where we see ourselves, but where we, we suddenly find a feeling that we've realised has been hovering maybe in the, the background of you know, our loved one's lives or something. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. For me, it's just like a, a distillation of a feeling. And, 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 and also those moments that you ex when you're experiencing, experiencing pure joy, that it, it does have a hollowness in it sometimes. It's bittersweet. Yeah, well, I suppose it's not as simple as you don't know what you got till it's gone. Although, you know, Joni Mitchell, that's, that's a great line. Um, but I think it's that more complex thing of sometimes, which is when bad things happen, it reaffirms the value of the things you still do have um, in that really existential way of, oh, it's all going to go. I think maybe for me that's why time is such a powerful theme, is to remind you that things mostly haven't been the way they are now, and for most of the future they won't be that way either. So the present is always this uh, rare commodity that you can kind of, feels wrong to say exploit, you know, and that's using the market logic model, but I suppose to to get the most out of while you can, or to enjoy while you can, you know? It's gonna go. You rarely realise that you're in the good times until they've almost become the past. Do you know, you, n you never kind of think, God, I didn't realise that that was the time, that was... Yeah. Never more so than with grief. I think possibly because I think it should just, 
I think you sometimes you see people a lot of the time being zombified for a bit and then coming at the other end kind of going cool here are the things that actually matter <laughs> you know not unlike actually how when you have uh, you know mirror images when someone goes and when someone arrives you know sometimes having a kid just really clarifies things for people um, a friend of mine had a had his first child uh, three or four years ago and um, it just kind of I think just gave him a heading in life I think he'd always really struggled with feeling really lost and I think most of his worst behaviours stemmed from a flail of him looking around and going oh, maybe I should do this maybe I should be this maybe I should be the kind of person who talks like this or reads these kind of books or is in these kind of shows or uh, throws it all away to go be a cheesemonger because you know art is elitist and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he had a kid and then he just went okay cool I know exactly what I'm for I know exactly who I'm for above all else you know and then actually everything else kind of slots neatly into a, a rank list of priorities after uh, my kid you know um, and I think grief does that in the opposite direction which is you go oh I have this huge feeling to deal with I'm just not going to worry about any of this stuff and by extension then that means that this stuff does matter that, that ranking of priorities is an interesting thing for me because um, I feel that you still have to get on with those other things I know that because kind of life kind of trundles on without you grief qualifies things yeah and it does but you still have to get on with those other things you know paying bills and all the little minor worries because they still have to be dealt with this is slightly sideways but I suppose you know what are our what, what are our easy metaphors for having a hard time and I think they're all about darkness and then actually there's a uh, in a very literal sense there's a clarity to grief <laughs> sometimes uh, it casts a light and actually like that things look different uh, because of it you know mm. which is you look around and you see you, you are afforded a new perspective on them by grief like in a really small way I mean I'm very lucky I'm talking as though I know what I'm talking about I don't I was saying I've never lost someone where I was most sad for myself I think I've only ever lost people where I was I suppose more worried about someone who's closer to them um, yeah but even there I mean I suppose on the, the day of the Abbey season launch I was saying I was going back through uh, photos of the Lingo Festival when we did the first reading of Boys of uh, sorry of City Song, mixing up my plays and my characters, um, uh, and I just stumbled across these photos of uh, Paul Curran, who's this spoken word poet who I started writing around the same time as we were about the same age, um, and he died last year. Um, and it's a funny thing when you see someone, or when you're I suppose when you unexpectedly come across someone's image or footage and video surfaced of him there the other day, which was truly strange because uh, you just look and you go, oh, there he is. And then you have to kind of remember to remember. Um, but it really took me aback. And it's the first time I've really, after someone's death, just kind of been struck all at once by, oh, yeah, he's gone. And he's, he, he's, he's not coming back. Um, and I was saying, that's not a good feeling. I was really upset. I walked into the Abbey. Jen Coppinger asked me how I was, and I burst into tears. Um, and she was very nice, despite the fact that she was then clearly going, cool, we know who our emotional liability is for the big, <laughs> the big event. Um, and again, you know, grief is not, a, or, or I suppose sadness and mourning, they're, they're not fun feelings. But that clarity that comes with them is not actually a bad thing. Um, because, you know, it's been so exciting having uh, City Song go on here. It's been so exciting having this big, cool thing happen. Uh, all of the attention that goes with that is nice. Feeling like you're, the business is really nice. Uh, fundamentally, attention is not the love that makes life bearable. Um, and, and I think, uh, I suppose, 
I suppose it's reaffirmed my belief in the project and that this is the play I really want people to see and I really want people to go, that's a Dylan Coburn Gray play. Um, but that actually the attention and stuff is nice, but incidental, um, you know, mm. and that it's the doing of it, I suppose, that matters, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. you know, that I suppose where those, yeah, clarity and loss and... Mm. And uh, just to add in there that, uh, that first section of the play, I suppose, about uh, Taxi Dad uh, driving his daughter home is inspired by a couple of things. One of my best friends when I was a teenager, her dad was a taxi driver and he always used to pick her up. And uh, Paul had a really beautiful poem about taking a taxi back to Kulak and just chanting taxi drivers. And uh, I think that section of the play definitely owes a debt to him. So it's, it was a complex old thing stumbling across those photos on that day. And I suppose having been rehearsing that play uh, that he won't get to see. So there's a lot going on there. Mm. Mm. I want to talk to you about vision and trust and when a playwright places their work in the hands of a director, you have to trust that the director is going to share your vision. Mm -hmm. Will you talk to me about that process with Katrina McLaughlin? Uh, Katrina is very easy to trust because she strikes this really, really good balance between uh, useful exploration and that's never, I suppose, caprice or chasing the shiny thing. Because I think maybe the directorial equivalent of Kill Your Darlings is uh, uh, get rid of that really cool moment that you spent a week working on <laughs> when you should have been blocking you know, two-thirds the plate, you know? Um, it's, it's so easy, I suppose, to trade off overall cohesion or uh, integrity for moments. Um, but it's really, really hard to make a satisfying piece that's just moments. Like, they do exist, but it's a, it's a funny thing. And so I think you're always um, navigating that tension. But I think Katrina's really sure and I think it's good to stress that sure doesn't mean she knows exactly what she needs from the word go. Um, and for me, one of the things that's been so great and why I've wanted to be in the room so much is to, uh, I suppose, um, to watch her making decisions and to kind of get a little in inkling of, oh, OK. So the second they did that, the second Jade did that, you knew, oh, yeah, I can put that with that moment that Daryl did earlier. And then, um, so I think sure isn't having a picture in your head, I suppose, as a sense of how it should feel, maybe, or what it's about, and then uh, your actors hand you the tools so you know how to get there or you know how to make it. Um, I think, yeah, that's, um, I think that's, that's where trust comes from, you know, when you meet a director or when you chat to them, is the sense that you don't need to be handed a blueprint for what it's going to look like. You don't need them to talk you through the whole play, you know, in terms of, and then this character will move over here. <laughs> um, uh, I think what you need to do is have a sense that they get it, which sounds really unrigorous, but that, but that they've read it and been excited by the things that excite you. Or even if they're not excited by the things that excite you, but that they're excited by different things for the same reason that you're excited by the moments that are your favourites, you know? Um, and that doesn't just go for directors, because, I mean, it was really exciting, I suppose, at the first uh, model box um, where uh, Sarah Bacon showed us her gorgeous set uh, idea. And I just instantly went, oh, I never knew that that's what I wanted the set to look like or that that's what I thought would be a beautiful set for it. And now that I see it, I go, of course, that's what it is. Of course, that's what it should look like. And really interestingly, I think the reason it worked that way is not because it's just a brilliant premise, but because she read the script and spoke really interestingly and incisively about what she'd gotten from it and used one of my favourite words, uh, liminality, and then had a really interesting 
references there. Um, and yeah, and then I think in a really laconic but also immediate way, you know, the fact that we have a big mirror on the stage um, is about that idea that when things are reflected, they're also transformed. Um, and that reflection is a transformation and that that's very thematic to the play that it is. A sense that maybe that you're both operating from the same set of priorities, even if you have different tools to do so. Dylan, you're a playwright yep. who studied music and performs spoken word. They're all disciplines that cross over and, and feed each other. Now, I have poured over City Song on the printed page and I have delighted in its mm -hmm. wordplay and, and imagery. But what is it about a poem that it has to be spoken out loud? And what changes in that transaction between speaking out loud and performance? I've learned a lot from reading my mother's book and watching her work because her, her discipline is clown. Um, which would say that the basic contract of theatre is not that something happens, uh, it's even more basic and more fundamental than that, which is that you agree to occupy the same space for a length of time and to be offered something which is worth being offered. Um, uh, clever, technological and postmodern counter-examples notwithstanding. Um, and I think for me, po you know, sometimes the boundary line between poetry and theatre feels very artificial, because in a way, you know, poetry like a like a, like sandwich is actually a very difficult uh, category to define precisely around the edges. You know, because does it have to rhyme? Does it have to have this? Does it have to go somewhere? Can it have plot? Can it have action? Can it have no action? Can it have, you know? Um, which is, I think, again, it's more almost a set of priorities or principles or tools rather than a, a thing, a defined product. Um, but I think the magic maybe of poetry is, uh, I think there's this like beautiful failure built into the premise. Because again, going back to that thing about, um, sometimes people think with rhyme, the point is to use fancy words. Whereas it's exactly the opposite. I remember being really struck reading Declan Donnellan's The Actor and the Target, which is one of a book I've never gotten over. You know, I think everybody has a couple of books they never get over. You just read it and you're like, every time you have a conversation about its subject matter for the rest of your life, you'll want to go, there's actually this great line in. Um, and that book is one of mine where he says that uh, an actor and a character's problems are opposite. The, uh, the, uh, the actor's problem is that the words are too big. The character's problem is that the words are too small. That you always have more inside than you can actually manage to get across that the map is always smaller and less detailed than the territory, that you can never quite say what you mean. I think for me, that's what justifies using language in strange, strange ways, either in a theatre or in poetry, which is the sense that you're doing so to try and mean something it's really difficult to mean, or to signal to your audience that you're chasing something you can't say just by saying, time passes, you know? Um, that I suppose the, the baroqueness or the over-the-topness of it is coming from a place of feeling like you're actually not doing well. It's not an end in itself, it's only ever a, a tool. So I think um, it's a dissatisfied beauty, and I think that's what's really interesting. And I think when we resent it, when we don't like it, it's because it doesn't feel dissatisfied. It's because however much we're affecting to be dissatisfied underneath that, there's a layer of, check me out. But that actually, those having little moments of that is part of the engine maybe of performing a poem play, which is that there are moments where you do manage to bring something into focus, but that maybe, you know, like, you know, uh, making a pot, you know, which is as soon as you've got this bit looking the way it's meant to look, this bit has gone and splurged all over the place. So that that actually is the urge to keep speaking. I've managed to make you understand what it's like to have your first child. 
Um, but I haven't managed to make you understand this next bit that comes next. So actually, I have to keep speaking. I have to keep rhyming. I have to keep finding the right words, or not the right words, but the words that are just good enough, or the words that are nearly good enough. And maybe I have to pile nearly good enough words on top of nearly good enough words until they maybe add up to something that kind of points in the direction of the thing I mean, even if they aren't quite what I mean. So I suppose that's, for me, why it feels very natural um, to, to mix up those registers. And I think that's... I think that's the real magic you can feel in a room is when someone's written a really good poem which is it's everybody waiting to have the whole thing come into focus it's everyone waiting to find out what it's all gesturing towards but not quite getting at There is a change in the room um, there's something very primal or tribal or whatever about speaking poetry aloud in a dark room Yeah. and you know because I, I've read City Song on trains, at my desk at my kitchen table and then, and I read it aloud in my kitchen. And then I see it in performance upstairs in the rehearsal room. And as I say, those images are so evocative that have stayed with me. And I've said, you know, not my story either, but mm -hmm. um, there's, there's an alchemy in that performance. There's something between just reading it aloud yeah. and performing. Yeah. I think maybe that's about that thing of watching someone go through something is that the same thing holds true in performance. I think there's something really interesting about watching a performer go through something or have a feeling arise and then pass again. Um, in like in a really different sense, Rosa, Rosas danced, uh, Rosas was on the Abbey stage a couple of nights ago as part of the dance festival, which I just adored because what you have is this really exacting, I suppose, kind of precise choreographic process, but within that, these little moments of humanity so the thing isn't actually to have the performers disappear into it I think the point is to watch these performers willfully undergo this mad ritual and to see what it does to them and see what happens to us as a result of that happening to them and I think sometimes actually just watching someone speak can be really magical in that way um, because there's, there's loads of gradation, there's loads of texture, there's loads of shade uh, in that which is those tiny triumphs and those tiny failures of you've got it, you haven't got it, everyone's got it. And actually I think that's, um, I think there's this really beautiful space sometimes which is the joke that knows it's a joke because, uh, uh, you know, which is when, when everyone laughs in a room it's an acknowledgement that we have all felt some <laughs> the same way about this, this moment. Um, and, and actually the, mo the best jokes I've generally found in my work, you know, is it's never the word wordplay. People don't laugh at wordplay. People go, ha, at wordplay. And that ha is not a real laugh. That's a fake laugh. That's the laugh of, check me out, I got that. Um, and I'm not really interested in getting that response from people. Um, I'm much more interested in the big laugh. And the big laugh is pretty much always from recognition. And that recognition is always, I think, of a truth from our lives, you know, or the lives we share. Um, and. I think uh, there's a particular, I think at that moment it feels really unnatural a lot of the time for me if the performer who has delivered the, the coup de grace doesn't smile along in acknowledgement of what has just, I suppose, been shared. Um, so you acknowledge the, the, the community of that. Um, and maybe to link that to difficulty, which is maybe the sense that um, part of the magic comes from, I suppose, using language not to talk about the things we know we share 
but to try and articulate the things we might share but don't know yet if we share. Does that make sense? I think that's what's compelling about it and that's the contract which is actually I think sometimes when we go to listen to someone speak what we're looking for is to have them show us theirs and to realise it's ours too. To, 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 I suppose, to realise the thing we had in common that we didn't know we had in common because we didn't even know we had it. Like, I definitely have those books uh, or poems that I've read and kind of went, oh, <laughs> oh, there I am. <laughs> very often in very unexpected ways. Uh, and that's really magic. Let's talk about the highly skilled and charming cast that you have assembled around you. Uh, we have six Abbey Stage debuts playing around 60 roles. We have Amy Conroy, Claire McKenna, Blaheen McGowan, Dan Monhin, Daryl McCormack and Jay Jordan. They make it look very easy out there. You want to talk about assembling that cast and, and I suppose how the rehearsal process has been going? Yeah, I think they're a fantastic bunch. Um, it's, it's just been so, so lovely to work with them. It's also been really lovely in that there are six people I've never worked with before as actors which is scary because I think, um, you know, budget and time constraints conspire to make it always seem like the most rational choice is to work with the people you already know, you share an artistic language and sensibility with. Um, and yet, actually, you know, I also have this big long list of people in my head who I've seen before and gone, oh, they're great, I'd love to work with them at some point. I'd love to work with someone who can do that, you know? I kind of feel like in theatre we're all nerds. We all have people we admire. I think the really interesting thing was I'd, I'd, I'd you know, I know Amy, but hadn't worked with her as an actor before. Um, I was in a show with Daryl, but he'd never been in anything of mine. Um, and then the other four are just total, totally new to me, and that's so rare. But actually, I think it was. I think you know, looking back, for, for, certainly for the bits of casting I was in on the conversation for, um, it was pretty clear that it should be them because I think they all have this gift for a kind of sincerity that kind of shines through the, the very, you know, kind of self-aware artifice of talking in rhyme, you know, which is what we're, we're doing, this very artificial, made thing. Um, and then, in a way, you can lean into that with people who are kind of word spinners. Um, and I think Katrina had a clarity from very early on, which I would have gotten and shared, is the sense that actually instead what you want is, I think, the people who'll get that the words aren't the point, the moment is the point and the words are chasing it, and who will really earnestly try to get it across to the audience, you know? So people who I think show those tiny failures, those tiny victories on their faces, those tiny moments of sharing, and those bigger moments of sharing. And I think, so they all have this beautiful, natural presence. Yeah, they're gifted, they're, they're not telegraphing, and they're not, yeah, as you say, showing off this fancy word play. There's a responsibility of getting the sense across without making it look laboursome, and they do it in such a simple fashion, and in such a, well, you said earnestness, There's a, there is a, a carefulness and a really endearing quality about all of them and they yeah. just reel you in because you're listening and, yeah. and you're just coming a little bit closer to hear what they have to say and you're getting the sense of it so quickly because that's their skill. And in a way I would again link that back to the fact that like, I've never actually trained in clown but I'm moderately good at kind of pretending I know a lot more about it than I do having read drafts of the book when Veronica was writing it. it there's this really interesting kind of middle path you know, between, I suppose, self-awareness and self-consciousness. Because I think sometimes when you say self-aware, people think it means a very flattened affect, post-dramatic thing of, hello, every joke comes inside quote marks, every sentiment comes inside quote marks. Whereas actually, um, uh, I think there's this much subtler thing that clown does very well, which is you end up feeling because you're feeling. And I think that's what these guys are good at doing as performers, is they stand on the stage and they feel because they're telling. 
and then they feel within the story as well and then they can step out and feel something different as a performer you know so there's this layering of I suppose them as performers and them as characters and they coexist and then they kind of end up commenting on one another interestingly um, and Katrina's done some really beautiful blocking with Bridget and Frank generally played by Dan and Claire and Katrina's come up with some really lovely kind of subtle and uh, beautifully complex blocking that I suppose kind of superimposes the actors and the characters in a way that does something really interesting. I suppose when I say, say you feel because you're feeling, that's, that is a type of self-awareness, but that is very sincere, you know, which is it's conscious without being ironic, you know, mm. which is, and I always say this to teenagers, which is sometimes we like to think of anger, you know, th emotions are things. You press a button and then the system, you know, the, the reservoir opens and the system's flooded with anger and then it all gets flushed out when the anger goes away. But it's not a thing, it's a process, it's a rhythm or a pattern and that, um, um, and that actually feelings always birth other feelings. So we start off being angry and then we become embarrassed that we're angry and then we become angry that we're embarrassed that we're angry and then we become sad that we're embarrassed that we're angry that we're, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think uh, really lovely, subtle, I suppose, to use a technical word, diegetic performance, you know, telling rather than showing, embraces that and it embraces that back and forth between you and the audience, which is you can be sad that they're finding it sad without necessarily being sad for yourself because you're used to it. You know, this is your story that you've had to tell people 50 times before, you know, this is bereavement five years on, you know, you have the packaged version it's easy to present people with and so actually if there is emotion, it's largely for the other person. Um, it's intersubjective as much as it is subjective, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. It does. So I think they all have a real emotional intelligence, which I really respond to. Dylan, I know we're well over time, but do you mind if we keep chatting? No, you okay. Cool. I want to keep with the cast. Um, I, w I was just thinking I was a chancer uh, and I got permission and watched a run up in the rehearsal room the other day. And um, so it is Thursday Tech and we haven't actually had an, a chance to watch the production with the Dublin crowd on, on home turf. I'm aware that this production is going to Soho Theatre for a month. And there's this quote that kind of came up, if you get to the heart of Dublin, you get to the heart of the world. <laughs> okay. So all this talk about whether an English audience will, will get this play or whether it would have to have a kind of a translation or any tweak or anything like that, what do you say to that? I mean, there was a development where we had to take some subtext and make it more textual, but they were largely, I suppose, uh, kind of real world things in terms of, you know, just clarifying Ireland's weird idiosyncratic history around things like having an emergency instead of a world war, the fact that the pill was illegal, um, and actually, largely speaking, you know, I've run into this before, touring boys and girls to the, to the, the US, which is um, vocabulary tends to be a problem, meaning doesn't. Yeah. Um, Will you have a glossary like you did with Boys and Girls? No, I think this is a more yeah. easy one because it's more... Th the voice actually is less specifically Dublin, while the characters are more so. Um, but I think what it is, is it's... Um, because the real-world details are never the point, it's the emotional response to them or the emotional core. And actually, so very often you can reverse-engineer what the, what the cultural meaning is from how the character responds to it. And if you can't, then it actually doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah.